This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. The courts of the United States are profoundly committed to the principle of stare decisis, a Latin phrase that means stable decisions. Stare decisis unifies our country. If federal law means one thing in Michigan and another thing in Georgia, then we don't have a federal legal system. Well, that issue has come up once again in the case of Gary B. versus Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan. The question here is whether the U.S. Constitution mandates that every state provide an equal and adequate education to every child. The Supreme Court decided that issue back in 1973 when it ruled in San Antonio v. Rodriguez that there was no federal right to an education. That was something for the states to decide. So the Rodriguez decision has been now in place, good law for half a century, but just this past month, two judges of the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals with a third judge dissenting seriously qualified Rodriguez. Now the decision doesn't directly overturn the well-known Rodriguez decision, but it's hard to square the opinion of the judges with the principle of stare decisis. And then the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, decides just this past week not to appeal Gary B. And instead she settles with the plaintiffs. So this means that the decision could be taking effect immediately without any chance of Supreme Court review. To discuss the case I have with me today, Ronco Testani, partner at Evershed Sutherland, who has served as a defense attorney in many adequacy lawsuits over the years and is one of the country's premier experts on this topic. So Ronco, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks for having me, Paul. Good to be here. Well, Ronco, the evidence that the majority cites in their opinion makes a very strong case that Gary B., the lead plaintiff in this case, and the other students who were attending schools in Detroit we're attending terrible schools. How, how does Michigan make an adequate defense when so many terrible things are being described in the, uh, by the plaintiffs? You know, you're correct that um, the conditions in, in Detroit, in, in a sense, are indefensible and should be addressed. And, and the dissenting judge in the case talks about this at some length, about the need to address these conditions and the importance of addressing them. But a couple of things. Uh, you know, in, in lawsuits and in constitutional law, uh, there is not a remedy to redress every social ill. Uh, if, there, if there were, then we wouldn't have social ills. And uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes said over 100 years ago in a case, hard cases make bad law. And, and that is, in a very real sense, what we're talking about here, because I am convinced that a decision by the federal court in the Sixth Circuit panel uh, is not a sound legal uh, uh, conclusion, nor would it be sound education policy. So in this decision that, that was made in the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, that is responsible for that part of the country in which Michigan is located, uh, the, the judges distinguish between the current legal situation that they're facing and the situation in Rodriguez, or at, at least the grounds for the decision seems to be different. They don't directly overturn Rodriguez. What do they exactly do in this case? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, and I'm still trying to figure it out, having read it a few times now. 
they obviously, the majority goes to great lengths to try to distinguish Rodriguez and limit its application. Um, I've, again, read it a number of times. I find it very hard to see the distinctions that they're trying to draw. Um, the evidence they cite, of course, in the Detroit case have to do with uh, performance uh, proficiency rates uh, at the schools that are at issue in that lawsuit, um, lack of proficiency among the students on the state assessments, physical conditions and facilities, uh, unqualified teachers, according to the allegations. And they say that those conditions are somehow different than what was at issue in San Antonio in a way that leads them to the view that there is some uh, threshold that's been crossed here that violates the Constitution. You know, the problem with that, of course, and, and where I was most interested in the decision is the part about how do we define this fundamental right to minimum education? And of course, what the court does is said, well, that's not really what we're going to need to do here. We'll let the, we'll let the trial court judge decide that. And, um, and that, of course, is the whole ball of wax in these cases, is how does that get defined? Um, and, and that is why I believe the court 50 years ago in, in San Antonio versus Rodriguez said, we're just not gonna get into that business. That is not the role of the federal courts to determine uh, what, is, what are the contours of, of a minimum education or an adequate education. I think that was correct by the Supreme Court uh, in 1973 in Rodriguez. And I think that if this decision holds by the Sixth Circuit, we're going to see, as we have in the state systems, decades of litigation over what is the nature of this right, and there won't be a resolution of it. So in the Rodriguez case, that old case back in 1973, I think it was really an uh, equal protection case, a case that came up under the clause in the 14th Amendment that says that uh, nobody can deny equal protection before the law. And and Rodriguez said, I was being denied equal protection before the law because my district isn't spending as much money on my education as other districts are spending on other kids' education, so I'm not being given the same opportunity. So the court rejected that argument. But here the argument seems to be more on the due process clause, that you have, uh, under the due process clause, certain fundamental rights. And one of those fundamental rights is the right to a basic minimum education. Isn't that logical? Well, the legal reasoning, I think, fails for this reason. The, in the 1973 Supreme Court decision, a fundamental uh, finding that the court would have to have issued in order to have ruled in favor of the plaintiffs is that education was a fundamental right. That would apply whether you're looking at it from an equal protection uh, perspective or a a due process perspective. And what the Supreme Court determined is that education is not a fundamental right that triggers what's called strict scrutiny for equal protection analysis. Having decided that it is not a fundamental right, then in my view at least, the Sixth Circuit was bound as a lower court to that determination by the Supreme Court that education is not a fundamental right uh, for due process purposes either. Well, why didn't the court, why didn't the judges just decide to overturn Rodriguez and just say, Rodriguez was decided incorrectly. Education is a fundamental right. We believe it's a fundamental right. We have good reason to believe it's a fundamental right. It sort of is suggested in Brown v. Board of Education that it isn't a fundamental right. Bad decision, overturn it. Why didn't they just say that? 
Well, because they 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 couldn't have just said that uh, under the rules that uh, uh, we have in terms of the Supreme Court being supreme, and so you know they could certainly question the finding by the Supreme Court in 1973 and and perhaps made arguments about why that it should be reconsidered. But as a lower court, they're bound by the precedent of the, of the United States Supreme Court. So, but I, my own view is that that is sort of what they did. <laughs> you know, they, they, they tried their best to distinguish uh, uh, Rodriguez uh, in the way that they did. But what they're really saying, in my view, is it was wrongly decided. Supreme Court, you should really have decided uh, that education is a fundamental right. Well, the Supreme Court doesn't like to be told that they have to change their mind, do they? Is, isn't this a pretty risky strategy for these judges to um, off? I, I must admit that it's a very well-written opinion, and there's some skill in the construction of the opinion uh, by Eric Clay, who, after all, went to Yale Law School. So, uh, you well, know, despite that, uh, despite that. that. <laughs> but but it, it seems like a bit of a stretch that 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 argument that there's a difference between basic education which is constitutionally protected and education which is not yeah i think it's a i i think it runs headlong into san antonio versus rodriguez i i think at the end of the day um you know ultimately if the u.s supreme court gets this case uh, i would expect it would be reversed but you know it may not get there i mean i've been reading about the possibility that the state of michigan won't appeal um and so uh, there is a process where the sixth circuit as a whole court could could consider the decision of this uh, three-member panel we'll just have to see how that develops well so what are the next steps then let's say uh, the whole circuit does does not uh, reconsider. Uh, then, then what happens next? Well, if this decision stands and 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 it doesn't um, remember, it was decided on a motion to dismiss. Uh, the state could try to appeal it, um, but again, that's up to the the uh, elected officials there as to whether that happens or not. If it doesn't get appealed, then it will go back to the trial court, the district court in Detroit, and the trial court has been instructed by by this panel, the Sixth Circuit. To, uh, to proceed with the litigation of the case. And that would include, for example, determining what are the contours exactly of this fundamental right to education. And that would most likely involve uh, the presentation of expert uh, testimony, uh, witnesses about the conditions there, uh, the relationship between uh, uh, resources and outcomes, um, and, and so forth. The kinds of things that are, that are litigated in the school adequacy cases that I, worked on uh, under state constitutional law. And there's a lot of range in opinion in those uh, adequacy lawsuits that uh, from one state to another, I mean, people still are fighting over what does an adequate education mean? Yes, um, you know, this, this has been going on for decades in the state courts. Um, you know, the difference with the federal system is that in every state at least, there is a constitutional provision in, in state law uh, that speaks to education. Uh, so at least there's some text in, in state law uh, about education, um, but you're correct. I mean, these cases have been litigated in most of the states um, and in many of the states have gone on for decades with really no resolution. Many states, a case I handled recently for the state of Florida found that it's not a, that it, these are political questions. 
policy questions that, that really should not be decided by courts. Other states, uh, New Jersey is a good example, have had decades of back and forth between the legislature and, and the state courts over what exactly is the, the right to the education under state law, what level should it be funded at, and when do you know you're, you've done enough to get out of the case? And yet that case has gone on, I think there's 25 decisions by the state Supreme Court in New Jersey about these issues. So these are complicated cases. There, there are very different decisions across the country. Um, and now maybe we have a federal uh, court or federal courts coming into the, um, into the process as well. So, you know, there was no discussion or not a very deep discussion of remedies here, but so it struck me as a person who thinks school choice is not a bad idea that you can solve this problem by letting Gary B have his choice of school. So why not just say, okay, so you've got the right to a fundamental, if you're not getting it in one school, you, you have a right to go to another school. Um, I will predict, Paul, a modest prediction, that that will not be the remedy that would be proposed by the plaintiffs in that case. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I think their argument would be, look, the state has an obligation here. They're providing this education under state law and they've got to fix these schools uh, that exist. Um, so uh, uh, I am aware that those kinds of arguments about the choice have been made and in other states about uh, what to do. And, uh, but again, I think one of the problems with these cases is that you get a very limited set of, of, public, uh, of public advocates involved. And you've got plaintiffs who have, and their, their counsel who have one set of ideas about how public education ought to be delivered in this country. Uh, and then the folks that may want other kinds of, kinds of reforms, including choice, are not at the table. And that's one of the problems with deciding these cases in courts as opposed to uh, the democratic process. Well, I noticed there was one thing missing in the uh, in the argument of the plaintiffs, and that is that the schools didn't have enough money. Now, that's usually the argument that's out there. But uh, as I understand it, the Detroit school system has more dollars spent per pupil than the state average. So they're actually uh, being, uh, you know, not denied anything on the dollar front, or maybe they're even being um, helped more than than the rest. Well, that is one of the, uh, and you're, you're right about that. I was just looking at the numbers uh, from a couple of years ago, at least. The Detroit spending was $13,000 per pupil. State average was 10000 So it's about 30% more being spent in Detroit, at least as of a few years ago. And yet the conditions described in the, the complaint and in the decision about uh, you know vermin and about uh, no teachers, uh, it, literally in some classrooms, no teachers. Um, uh, very old textbooks. Uh, it's hard to square that and to, and to figure out exactly what's going on there uh, or, or why that is. But you're correct where these cases usually go and, and almost always end up is the claim that there's just not enough money to provide, uh, to, to provide uh, the, the education right. And uh, we'll see how this develops. I will be interested and watch certainly like all of us, how they explain uh, how they can't have a teacher with that level of resources available. So I don't see why the state of Michigan is involved here. If there's enough money, or at least more money here than elsewhere, uh, it, it sounds like a management, and somebody's not managing this system very well if, if they can't translate dollars into services that are meaningful for kids. 
why isn't this the local school board that should be held responsible rather than suing the state of Michigan? Well, I think uh, there's a history here, a long history of the state's involvement with the Detroit schools. And, and, and it goes back to a, a sort of a fiscal emergency that was declared several years ago under state law uh, of mismanagement in Detroit uh, in the, by the local uh, officials. Uh, the state's role in that fiscal emergency and sort of oversight is kind of what got them on the hook in this case in the first place. But I think you're right. I think that's been uh, stopped or the state's role as, a, as uh, overseeing the schools has ended. And so uh, we'll, we'll see whether the plaintiffs want to, you know, continue with the case against now the local officials who are now running the Detroit schools or uh, how that how that proceeds. But I agree with you, at least as of now, the, the running of these schools, the management of these schools and the conditions that exist in these five particular schools really seem to me to be a matter of local management uh, rather than a lack of, of resources coming from the state of Michigan. Well, Rock, though, Governor Gretchen Whitmer just decided this past week that she would not appeal the decision. How unusual is it for a defendant who loses in a major constitutional case to decide not to appeal the decision? Well, it's very unusual. Um, and it has very serious implications, not only for the litigants to the case, namely the state of Michigan, uh, but also um, uh, states throughout the Sixth Circuit uh, territory, which includes Ohio, it includes uh, Kentucky and Tennessee as well. So this decision, by her decision not to appeal, means that this panel uh, two to one decision that you mentioned uh, will, will be the decision of the Sixth Circuit, it will be precedent. We, that mean, means we have one law in this circuit and another law in the rest of the country when it comes That's to right. education. Yeah, and the other complicating factor going on right now is that the Michigan legislature is seeking to intervene in the Gary B case at the Sixth Circuit uh, in order to uh, have the full Sixth Circuit hear the case or potentially appeal it to the Supreme Court. So uh, that's occurring right now. We'll see what the Sixth Circuit does with that. But you've got two, two elements of the Michigan government the executive and the governor who doesn't want to appeal and has settled the case, and the Michigan legislature who is seeking to intervene and to appeal the case. Well, how does, how does that work? I mean, can, can the executive branch settle a case if the legislative branch is not in an agreement? Well, that's the question that's being posed to the Sixth Circuit right now because the governor, at the end of the day, the governor doesn't have to pay this settlement or face the consequences consequences of having to pay additional funds to Detroit public schools or other schools across Michigan, the legislature will have to do that. So it does present not only um, federalism concerns, which we know about uh, from the federal court imposing this on Michigan, but we also have separation of powers concerns between the governor and the legislative branch of government within the state of Michigan. Well, I understand that this is getting a bit into the weeds, but I understand that she all she promised was to submit a bill to the legislature and then give a relatively small amount of money that maybe she has in an existing pot that she can spend. So uh, does, is that how she, she worked around this problem? Well, I don't think she's worked around it. I, I've always viewed this case as a cause, not a case. And the cause was to get a decision 
from from a court of appeals that has that would establish a fundamental right to education under the U.S. Constitution. That has been an objective for years by advocates, and so the real prize here was the decision. Uh, in terms of her proposed settlement, uh, you know, all that she has offered is that she would propose legislation. Uh, you know, and we'll see what the legislature does with that in light of the division between the legislature and the executive right now in this very case. I, I think it's probably dead on arrival uh, and a very, as you point out, a, a modest payment uh, of $2.7 million to fund literacy programs in Detroit and then a uh, several hundred thousand dollar payment to the named plaintiffs in the case. So, yes, on, in terms of the financial consequences right now, very modest, but again, the, the real game is in preserving this decision. So the, the plaintiffs were happy with the settlement because they really don't care about the money in this case. What they care about is getting this principle established out there for, for future lawsuits. Yes, that's my take. <laughs> well, that means that there's gonna be a plenty of litigation as we go forward. Well, uh, that would appear to be the case. I mean, I still think that there is a reasonable chance that the full Sixth Circuit will, in fact, uh, rehear this case and will reverse it. Uh, but we won't know that now, probably for several weeks or months. Well, thank you very much for elucidating this very complex situation, which has all of a sudden become more complex than ever. Uh, so thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange, uh, Rocco. You're welcome, thank you. I've been speaking with Rocco Testani, partner at Evershed Sutherland in Atlanta. He is an attorney for many adequacy lawsuits and one of the leading uh, experts on this aspect of American education. I am Paul Peterson, this is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.